These stories just keep getting better and better, don't they? <laughs> I mean, really, there's some really intriguing stories in the book of Acts. It's, it's amazing. And I think this is one of the most interesting in the book of Acts. And I think it contains one of the most important lessons for Christians, especially in our day and in our culture. Now, there are things in this story that may challenge some of your beliefs. This is not an easy passage to interpret or teach on, and I'm going I'm to do my best, but my role as a teacher is, is not to protect you from your Bible, <laughs> but rather my role is to teach you everything that is in it. And I read somewhere this week, and actually it was about this passage, am I too loud? No? Okay. I read somewhere this week where someone said, it's a wild ride if you teach the whole counsel of God. And I say amen to that. Uh, just causes us to consider things that maybe we wouldn't consider. So, Now, one of the main things that people differ on in this passage is whether Simon's belief in Christ was genuine or fake. And right up front, I'm going to tell you that I take it that he, that he did believe, that he genuinely believed, but he succumbed to a sinful tendency from his old life. I believe this story shows how tendencies, attitudes, or values that were once deeply embedded in your heart can creep over into your Christian life. In other words, we can bring baggage from our old life into our new life. Marriage, I think, is a good example of this. When you get married, you bring baggage into your marriage. And your spouse brings baggage into your marriage. The, the amazing thing that this baggage is mostly invisible or ignored before your wedding. But after you are married, this baggage suddenly shows up. And you see... Insecurities, you see emotional problems, uh, expectations of one another, uh, set ways of doing things perhaps carried over from your own parents and the home that you were raised in or the home that you grew up in. There's just obvious sins and blind spots, all kinds of baggage. And all that baggage really needs to be dealt with or removed for the marriage to survive and thrive. Well, the same kind of thing can happen when a person becomes a Christian. Uh, an angry man or woman can carry that baggage of anger into the new life. A very clever or manipulative person can bring that tendency over into the new life. A person who once loved to gossip and slander and talk about other people can fall into that tendency in the church. A person who's very greedy and just willing to step on other people in order to get, to get rich can, um, can perhaps fall into that same way of thinking as a Christian. Uh, a person who's very lazy or slothful can carry some of, of that attitude over into the new life. A person who's very pessimistic uh, can, bring, can bring negative and hopeless thinking and attitudes into the Christian life. A per person who's very proud or very critical or judgmental can, can find ways to kind of put a Christian spin on that and 
that can come out in certain aspects in the new life, in, in, in pr- pride or condemnation of others. Now, let me say something very important. This does not have to happen. And it is not to be tolerated in our lives as something that is just okay. And the story of Simon, I believe, shows the grave danger of bringing this kind of worldly or natural human thinking into the church and to carry this kind of things over into your Christian life. This story is a warning. This is, this is a warning story, okay? So this, this, you may not leave here feeling as good as you do some Sunday mornings. <laughs> it's, it's a warning story. Uh, this is a huge danger, and it needs to be dealt with as strongly as Peter deals with it in this story. You know, Paul wrote to the Colossians, but now, and he's writing to believers, but he says, but now, as, as new people, you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. In, in another passage, in Romans 12, Paul wrote, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So in other words, when we walk out of our old life and into the new life as a child or a daughter of God, son of God or a daughter of God, when you you become a child of God, you enter a, a whole new realm, a whole new life. I mean, I don't know how the scriptures could put it any more um, clearly in that it's old life, new life, old man, new man, old self, new self, darkness, light. I mean, we come out of the dominion of darkness and of Satan into the kingdom of, of Jesus Christ and his, you know, the glory of, of his life. I mean, it's just, it's just to be a, a, a radical transition. And so we are, to ha- we, are, we are now, as new people, we are to have... Thoughts and attitudes and values and perspectives of the kingdom of God. And all of those are, they're, they're brand new and many of them are 180 degrees different from the world's way of thinking about things and treating people and talking about circumstances and responding to life. For example, we are to have the attitudes that God shows us in, a word, in his word about our sexuality, about money, about work, about problems, about trials. I mean, it's just God wants to just totally reorient your value system and your mind in the way that you think about everything. We are to give thanks in all things. How different is that? We're to give thanks in all things, to rejoice always. We're to live in forgiveness and love and to bless those Well, we're to bless all people, but even those who wrong us, even those who do us evil. So in all attitudes, in all responses to life and to people and to circumstances, we're to live in this newness of life. We're to to jettison or to get rid of the baggage of our old life so we are not held captive to it any longer. 
And again, I say very boldly and clearly, we do not have to retain this baggage. You do not have to retain the baggage of your old life. In fact, I think one of the things that this story about Simon shows is, is by pointing him out as, as an exception among those who were saved and, and baptized at Samaria. The Bible is clear. Christ bought and paid for our release from sin. Christ bought and paid for your release from your sins. Not only the forgiveness of your sins, hallelujah, as great and wonderful and massive and foundational as that is, but also he bought and paid for the, your captivity or bondage or the, the, the idea that you have to sin or live that way. Christ completely broke the power of every sin and every lie of the devil and Paul said, do you not know that you died with Christ and that he who has died is freed from sin? So we do not have to be in bondage to old attitudes, old thought patterns. We, we can live free from these things. We can live, as Paul calls us to, we can live in the righteousness, peace, and joy of the Holy Spirit. But we must choose to to live to go live in that freedom, and so when we when we, when we become aware, and it's really a mercy of God when you know when you become aware of something ugly in your life, something, some way of thinking, some approach to life that that, that just isn't right, that isn't godly. Because when we become aware of those things, when you discern that you have been thinking unspiritually about something then you can and should decisively repudiate that and renounce that and choose decisively to put on the new man, as it says in Ephesians. Choose to put on new thoughts and attitudes that God has put in you by the indwelling of his spirit. All right, now, let's look at Simon here. Simon is or was what we would call a celebrity. He was a rock star, or he had rock star status in the city of Samaria. You know, I went online and I tried to find out how big the city of Samaria was. I know it was a major city in Israel, but it was uh, or north, north of Jerusalem. Um, and the best that I, estimate that I could found that probably the ancient city of Samaria in Bible times probably had about 40,000 people. So it wasn't like... Millions and millions of people, but it wasn't a real small town either. But Simon was hugely popular, probably not only in the city of Samaria, but in this whole region. And he amazed people with his magic. He was a sorcerer. You know, the, the Bible tells us that there are real demons, there are real spirits that are not on God's side. There are real spiritual powers out there that are opposed to God and to Jesus Christ. And apparently Simon used these. Well, he definitely used these. Let me, let me change the way I'm going to say that. He definitely used these dark and demonic powers to produce some kind of phenomena. And I, I think he produced real spiritual, uh, r- real supernatural phenomena. I mean, stuff that wasn't just like what, 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 what we see a magician, typically see a magician do that is, that is only deception. 
I think there was real dark demonic powers here at work through him. So he was able to do some, some pretty amazing things, and, and he became a very popular and famous man. And like many of today's celebrities, uh, Simon was not content to wait for others to uh, praise him or to say how great he was. It's, he promoted himself. Verse 9 says he boasted that he was someone great. And for some reason, as soon as I read that verse, I thought of all the, our uh, pro- professional athletes today who just unashamedly boast about how great they are. He pr- boasted that he was someone great. Verse 10, all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is the divine power known, or this yeah, this man is the divine power known as the great power. Different translations put it a little bit differently. But basically, he, he exalted himself by calling himself the great power. Very humble. It's possible that the crowds uh, gave him that name, but I, I think it's more likely that you know, he, call, he called himself that. And, and you know, if he came into town... Uh, just kind of putting it into modern context for for a minute, just to try to make it alive. You know, if he if he came into a town, uh, he might put up a, a poster of himself, maybe saying that the great power will be in such a ch- such and such a town, August first, whatever, for three nights, and uh, so he was he was very big into self promotion. The verse eleven says. They followed him for a long time because he amazed them for a long time with his magic. So, I mean, he, he, he did some pretty special stuff. People, were, uh, people followed him, and uh, they had done this for, for quite a while. So here was a guy. He was, he was used to being in the limelight. Simon was used to having attention. He was used to glory. He was used to exercising power over an audience and for people to, to think he was something special. And I think he had some of the same uh, baggage that we often see in, in the conversion today of athletes or movie stars or famous musicians and, and other celebrities in our culture. But something amazingly happened something a, a work of god happened in samaria in the city of city of samaria in that region and we we spent some time on this last week a, a guy by the name of philip uh came down his, his filled with the holy spirit grace of god was upon him he was able to do he did mighty wonders and people got saved in this in this town where there was a lot of apparently witchcraft and sorcery and darkness and people following things and people like Simon that they shouldn't be. There was just just the, the darkness of, of unbelief and people not knowing God. But when Philip came to town, all of that changed. And verse 12 says, but when they, and it was, this is just a, a general reference to the people, I think in some way, though it refers to all the fans of Simon, uh, the great power, when when. I think you could translate this, or not translate it, but you could interpret this. But when all the fans of Simon believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So fairly quickly, as Philip 
preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, Simon's fans were gone. And they became enamored with Jesus Christ, not with Simon. And then perhaps one of the most surprising and amazing things is that it says, and even Simon himself believed the message. Verse 13 says, Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. So just very, very, uh, in very plain, direct language, uh, Luke, the writer of Acts, Luke says that Simon believed, he was baptized, and he went wherever Philip went, or some translations say he was devoted to Philip, or he stayed close to Philip. So, uh, if you want to interpret his uh, salvation in some other term, you're, you're certainly welcome to do that. And it's not going to change what I, what I have to say to you this morning. But Luke does not say that he pretended to believe or that he falsely believed or it was a fake conversion. So I take it that he genuinely did believe. But then something happens which exposes a very uh, dangerous and unspiritual attitude that was still undealt with in Simon's heart. Uh, Verse 14 says, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that men and women in Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. People were getting saved from the preaching of Philip. They believed. They were baptized in the name of Jesus. Uh, But verse 16 says, the Holy Spirit had not come on any of them. The ESV says he had not fallen on any of them. So the apostles heard that these men and women had believed in Jesus, including Simon, that they had been baptized in water in the name of Jesus, including Simon. Uh, But the apostles also knew that they needed to receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And so that's where Peter and John end up coming down to this city where all these new converts and where Simon also was. Now, I don't like to preach two messages in one message, and I really don't like to take a big detour in a message, but I'm going to. Uh, I have to, uh, because, because we come to a part of the story that is, that is meant I believe, just, just merely to be background to this real story of Simon. But because our experience or of, the, of the Holy Spirit uh, may not or has sometimes not been, as it is described in Acts for the early Christians, something that is just background to the story becomes something that has to be explained. Uh, the Christians in the first century... I believe, knew what Luke was talking about, so they just went on with the story. Uh, But many reading the story today, we we can get kind of hung up or it can raise questions here over the idea of them needing to receive the Spirit. So I'm just going to deviate, talk, not for, I'm not going to go way into this, but I I have some things that I'm going to say. Consistently throughout the book of Acts, the pattern that's described in the book of Acts, is that people believed the message about Jesus Christ. They were baptized in water as Jesus commanded. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Or they were baptized with the Spirit. 
or the Spirit came upon them or fell upon them or they received the Holy Spirit, all different terms used, I believe, of the same thing. The order was not always the same, and I'm, I'm not trying to create a formula here. I'm just saying that in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, uh, belief in Jesus, water bapti- baptism, and receiving the Spirit were all specific components of the believer's experience. For example, uh, in Paul's life, uh, three days after he was after he was introduced to Christ on the road to D- Damascus, after he was after he was saved and converted on the road to D- Damascus, uh, three days later, God sent a man named Ananias to his house and prayed. Ananias, this man, uh, prayed for Paul to receive the Holy Spirit. Then, after that, in Paul's situation, then after that, he was baptized in water. And I simply kind of point that out. It's a terrific illustration of conversion, water baptism, and receiving the Holy Spirit. But it's in a different order than it happened here. Now, the fact that the apostles felt these believers needed to receive the Spirit uh, does not mean that the Holy Spirit had nothing to do with what had happened in their lives up to this point. We know from a message just a few weeks ago that no one can believe in Jesus. No one can confess that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was at work in and upon these people for them even to believe and to confess Jesus Christ. So in that sense, if you want to to use it, in that sense they had received the Spirit so if that is true, then what does Luke mean when he says that they received the Spirit after they believed and after they were baptized? Well, here's what I, as I understand it, to receive the Holy Spirit as Luke spoke of it consistently through the book of Acts, as Luke spoke of it in Acts, to receive the Holy Spirit meant to, re, to experience the Spirit coming upon your life in such a way that you know he is there and that he makes a difference in your experience. It means to experience the Spirit in such a way that it leads to, that it leads to um, spiritual exuberance and joy. Uh, it leads to your heart bursting with praises to God, singing, giving thanks, uh, proclaiming the wonders of God, perhaps as is, as it happened several times in Acts, perhaps even in tongues and prophecy. Uh, John Piper said, Luke expects the receiving of the Holy Spirit to be a real, identifiable experience of the living God. And I took the liberty to print out, I hope I didn't break any copyright laws, but I printed out some copies of a message by John Piper, what does it mean to receive the Holy Spirit? And specifically deals with this passage in Acts and the concept of receiving the Holy Spirit. And I I agree with it. It's in line with what I'm teaching this morning. There's some copies in the back table there if some of you are more inclined to be so interested for digging a little bit deeper into that. All that Christ purchased for you on the cross 
needs to become a living experience within you. The full experience of that salvation that Jesus died to bring to you needs to be ignited by the Holy Spirit. You know, for, exa- for example, uh, in Ephesians 5, it uh, tells us or commands us to be filled with the Spirit, singing and making music in your heart to the Lord. So if someone is not experiencing that going on in their heart, it doesn't mean that Christ's work on the cross for that person was incomplete. Complete. It just simply means that that person isn't living in the experience of all that Christ died for you on the cross. So the Holy Spirit is the, the way that we, that, we, that we experientially live in righteousness and peace and joy and praise and thanksgiving. He's the, the, the power uh, placed within us by the gracious work of God. Now, let's go back to Simon. Let's go back with the story. Verse 15. When they arrived, uh, the apostles were talking about now Peter and John. They, they, they knew that these people had believed. They'd been, they'd been baptized. But the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. That's what, we, that's what we just talked about before we went into this detour. Okay. So when they, when, or when Peter and John arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, most of the other passages in Acts mention uh, people either speaking in tongues or prophesying when the Spirit came upon them. Those things are not mentioned here. But But it seems that there was some kind of evidence of the Holy Spirit filling them that was so obvious to Simon that he wanted to be able to produce that effect too. He wanted to be able to, to come up to a person, pray for them, and see something kind of spectacular happen in their lives. And um, so, so verse 18, he says, When Simon saw that the Spirit was given by the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone in whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. All right. At this point, the apostles see and, and we see that some very wrong thinking had carried over into Simon's life. I think when he saw people receive, receiving the Spirit, it stirred up things from his old life of being a showman, of being the center of the show, of being able to impress people. But the thing that Luke keys on as the core sin, the core mistake of Simon, was that he thought that he could buy ability from God or favor from God with money. In verse 20, Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. Uh, That verse is probably why many assume that Simon was not a genuine believer and uh, and I honestly, if somebody feels that way about it, I, that's, it's definitely possible to interpret this passage differently. But however, the, the word perish um, literally means just waste or ruin, does not always, even as used throughout the Bible, does not always mean like eternal hell. 
one commentary said this, after, receive, or after reviewing the testimonies of Luke, Peter, and Simon, the evidence seems to support the fact that Simon had believed in Jesus Christ and like the other Samaritans was saved and baptized, but then he sinned greatly. He was in danger of experiencing God's temporal judgment for his specific sin of trying to purchase this power. You know, Simon probably had lots of money before he came to Christ. I mean, he was extremely popular. He had lots, all pe- lots of people coming to, to his show, so to speak. And in this world, money talks. Money is the way things get done. Money buys access and favor. And Simon was used to getting things he wanted with money. And so it just became a sort of a, an, an, an impulse. Just out of this old way of thinking came this, hey, I've, I've got plenty of money. I'd like to buy the ability to do that. But that's not the way things get done in the kingdom of God at all. God is not a respecter of money. God is not a respecter of the rich. And God gets things done by the power of the Spirit, not by dollars. Revelation twenty two seventeen puts it so well. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. That's the way God operates with us. You know, we come, come to him freely. You can't buy the Holy Spirit. You can't buy the ability to minister the Holy Spirit to others. Uh, you can't buy any spiritual blessing or gift of God. Uh, God offers freely all that you need for life and for salvation so that no one can boast and so that he gets all the glory. Certainly, those who have money can use it for great good. But it doesn't purchase status with God and it doesn't purchase spiritual ability from God. So, since Peter dealt specifically with this wrong uh, attitude about money that Simon had, I just want to bring up a, a couple applications from this. I mean, perhaps you've been a Christian for a long time, but you still... You still hold on to that worldly thought that God could use you in greater ways if you just had more money. Or you think you would be happier if you just had more money. You'd, be, you'd, you'd, you'd really be able to be a joyful Christian if you just had more money. Or you think that you are not blessed, that you are not a blessed person because you're not as rich as somebody else. Uh, or maybe you say things like, you know, I'm going to start giving someday when I finally make some, some more money. Or you think that lack of money is just your biggest problem in life. I mean, these are all lies from the world and they can infiltrate your thinking as a Christian unless you decisively turn from them and repent of them. Verse 22, Peter said, you have no share in this ministry. And I, I, I believe he's talking about that you have no share in this ministry of of administering the Holy Spirit to people because your heart is not right before God. 
Now, those are strong words. And that's, that's hard to say to somebody. You're, you know, your heart is not right before God in this matter. Uh, but sometimes we need to be told that your heart is not right before God in this matter. That some attitude, some motive, some ideal, some idea that we are uh, allowing to live on in our hearts is not right before God. And hopefully, hopefully you see that on your own just by the Holy Spirit revealing it to you. Um, Otherwise, hopefully somebody loves you enough to tell you that like Peter did Simon. Verse 23, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in, in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. The same uh, commentary I quoted earlier said, his need was, was not to get saved, but to repent of that sin. He needed to see how terribly wrong and reject. He needed to see how he was terribly wrong and reject the error of his ways, which he seems to do. Um, I want to talk a little bit about repentance because that's really what this all comes down to. There's things that get carried over from our old, old value system, our old ways of responding to life and people and circumstances. And Peter told Simon, you, know, you, you need to repent of this way of thinking in your heart. Repentance is a, is, is a good thing. Okay, <laughs> let, me just, let me just change your mind about that. Re- repentance is the spiritual tool... God has given you to break free from the stuff that should not be in your life. Okay, I'm, I'm, I don't like to repeat things, but I'm, I'm going to say it again. Repentance is the spiritual tool that God has given you to break free from the stuff that should not be in your life. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. So when, when, you stop, when you stop justifying when you stop excusing your old patterns of behavior and acknowledge them as sinful or wicked and express your sorrow to God for those things, then God sets you free from them. It's an amazing thing. Repentance frees you, frees you from being a captive. It's a God-ordained way for you to no longer be held captive to anything. So when you stop justifying things like outbursts of anger, when you stop justifying things like self-pity or envy or jealousy of others or love of money or pornography or complaining or a critical spirit, it's amazing how God can then free you of these things and things like them. There's, there's a dear gal that Cindy and I have tried to help bre- break free from s- some bitterness toward God and others who, who did some real wrong to her. It was destroying her happiness. Uh, she was miserable and repeatedly um, asked us for help. Uh, but when we would begin to, to open up the scripture or begin to uh, show her God's way of thinking and living about these things, almost before we could get the words out of her mouth, she would say, well, but you see, it's like this. And instead of even hearing our words, she would say, well, but the thing is, and she would go on to say why we didn't understand, why it wouldn't work for her, why 
the thoughts that we were sharing from God wouldn't apply in her situation, how her situation was unique and different. And she would go on to, to justify her present attitudes and responses. And lacking repentance, she was still held captive to those things. Repentance is, a, is, is just, it's just, a, it's just a way of, of life. You know, I, 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 this is not a, a scriptural um, word picture, but it's one that often helps me. Uh, I just I think of just the continual need of you know how we breathe we exhale uh, the used up or bad air and breathe in fresh air. A lot of times I'll just say, Lord, I just I exhale my fears, my anxieties, my this thought, my this that, and the, all this bad stuff. I just I exhale that and I just I breathe in trust and peace and joy and praise and thanksgiving. And there, so we just we live kind of a, a re, a, re, a repenting kind of life, just always turning away from old things that have w- that would that, that would carry over from the old life and could damage our experience of the new life. The en- <clears throat> the uh, the next verse, well, no, that's the same verse. The NIV says, "Pray to the Lord in the hope that He may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart." The ISV says, and I think the ESV is pretty much the same. Says, "Pray to the Lord that, if possible, this evil intent of your heart may be forgiven you." <clears throat> now, I think Peter's communicating here not that the Lord uh, would not forgive a, uh, a a genuine repentant person. I, I think what is communicating here, Peter's communicating here, is that that the grasp that this sin has on Simon is so strong that it's a question in Peter's mind whether Simon will approach the Lord in such a way as to as to find this an experiential forgiveness and re- release from it. So, so he so he re- he really strongly warns him, and he says, "Because I see that you're full of bitterness and captive to this sin." Uh, the Good News Translation says you are full of bitter envy and are a prisoner of this sin. Now, it seems that Simon um, felt inner resentment that Peter and John could come to Samaria and bless people in this amazing way of helping them to receive the Holy Spirit. And if, if I'm interpreting this correctly, his bitter envy was likely in just seeing other people be able to do these remarkable things and and he had a kind of a bitter envy in his heart that he wasn't able to do that and so his motive in wanting to give the apostles money was to obtain this ability and peter says that that stemmed out of this bitterness this bitter bitter envy that's in your heart so he wanted to do something or to have something that god had given others to do and this is the root of so much Bitterness in people's lives, uh, looking at someone else and resenting yes. that they have gifts that we don't have, and we say, "Why, why can't I do that? Or why don't I get to do that?" Or it's easy to envy envy other people's circumstances, and why do I never suffer? Why do they never suffer like I do? Or when do I get a break? Or when is it my turn? Um, all such attitudes of 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 bitter envy need to be aggressively and once for all uh, repented of or they will hold you captive. Now, verse 24, Simon answered. One ver- this is 
I can't remember which version this is. I write down these passages, a lot of different versions. It says, both of you pray to the Lord for me that none of the things you have said will happen to me. But basically, Simon went, he turned back to Peter and John and says, you know, pray for me to the Lord. Pray to the Lord for me that none of these things that you have said will happen to me. Verse 25, after they had given their testimony and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem, continuing to proclaim the good news in many Samaritan villages. Well, like many stories in the Bible, we wish there was a few more details filled in here to answer uh, some of the questions we have. Uh, there, are, there are many who say that, uh, there's many that say that Simon never was genuinely converted. He never changed. He was a terrible, terrible uh, guy the rest of his life. Others, others believe that he, conti- that he actually did repent here and continued with the church in Samaria. Uh, I take Simon's uh, statement as a sincere desire to be forgiven and to escape the, the dire things that Peter said about him. I, just, I, I don't see a, just a cold, unrepentant person saying, uh, Peter, pray for me that these things, these dire things that you've said, um, that, that, so that none of these things would happen to me. Some, some people see that as a very sin, insincere statement, but I, I just happen to interpret it differently. All right, conclusion. Number one, it's time to see the seriousness of things that you may have been allowing to hang around your Christian life that aren't supposed to be there. It's time to see the seriousness of those things. It is not, if this story shows us one thing, and particularly if if my my understanding of it is correct, if this story shows us one thing, it shows us it is not a small thing to keep living with attitudes from your old life. Number two, stop excusing yourself for clinging to old attitudes that you know do not belong to your new life in Jesus Christ. That's really the first step in repentance. The first step in repentance is just stop making excuses for those things. Stop justifying them. Stop explaining them and why you are right in continuing to think and feel feel that way, that you're justified to, to, to continue to feel angry or bitter or have envy or whatever, whatever it could be, self-pity. That's the first step in repentance. Just you stop excusing yourself. You see, you see the, maybe for the first time, you begin to see this, just the wickedness of that, how offensive and displeasing it is to the Lord. And so you, so you, begin, to, you begin to deal with it. Third, ask for forgiveness and release from the damaging consequences that sin can bring upon your life. And I'm thinking here in terms of the, just the temporal consequences, kind of the, your, the things that you reap in this life from, from, from sinning. Sin costs a lot. Amen. And there's that old saying, I've uh, heard it attributed to uh, Ravi Zacharias, I'm not sure if it came from him or not, but sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. So 
Pray to the Lord to keep you from sin and from the painful consequences uh, that, it, that it leads to. And finally, know that when you do these things, the Lord will abundantly pardon and shower his grace upon you and restore the joy of your salvation to you. Um, you know, even the people that killed Jesus, that just killed Jesus a few weeks ago, Peter said, repent and turn to the Lord so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I mean, it's just like, wow, people could do the worst sin in the world, the work the worst evil and wickedness, just, you know, turn through, again, through this, through repentance. And wow, times of refreshing and joy are going to come from the presence of the Lord. Wow, the, the grace of God to forgive. And, you know, First John 1, 9, if we, can, if we just merely confess, come to God, confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just or righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us or remove from us all unrighteousness. What a, what a wonderful promise to, to keep, in, keep in mind. So uh, let's, uh, let's just, let's determine to uh, go, get, go get free from, from uh, the old life, put those things off, live more totally, more completely in the new. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you.